Once again, we are here through the course of the remainder of this year up until Advent. We are seeking to answer the question, why are we here? As a church, why do we exist? As people of the living God, what is our purpose and what is our goal? We spent four weeks looking at the issue of worship. And I share with you that I believe that that is the key to everything else we do. For when we're meeting God on a regular basis, we will begin to become who he wants us to be. Now, the process that he uses to do that is the process of discipleship. Now, immediately, I want to I want to just kind of dispel some idea, because a lot of people, when they hear discipleship, they think about just brand new babies. Well, yeah, it is about brand new members in Christ. But folks, I haven't done this in a while, so I'm going to do a little congregational participation. Would you please take your pulse? Just real quickly. Now, if you don't feel anything, let us know. All right, you're taking your pulse. Okay, so if you have a pulse, what does that mean about your existence right now? You're alive, and folks, as long as you're living, there's room for growth. There will never come a point in time when you will say, honestly, I've grown as far as I can. Now, when I was a young preacher boy, I just surrendered to preach about the age of 15, I had shared with me an idea to kind of shape the direction of how I understood this thing called discipleship. Basically, it grew out of a concept found in the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, Paul wasn't actually addressing this to say this is what discipleship is. He was addressing it because the church at Corinth was messed up. And they were all saying, well, I like this preacher, or I like that preacher. And some even got so sanctimonious, well, we're going to follow Jesus. And Paul was talking about that, but listen to the image he chooses to use. In the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 3, he wrote, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will be rewarded according to their own labor. Now, what he's saying is, you're like a plant. As a church and as individual members of Christ, the body of Christ, you were planted and now you're growing. And God used different people to come into your life to point out the direction for you. And folks, that's what discipleship's about. Discipleship does not belong to people who don't know the Lord. The seed has been planted. It is growing. And discipleship requires other people to come into our lives to help us. Now, I'm a firm believer that anyone can, uh, that is a child of God can read the Word of God and, and come to truth. But God has so chosen to bring into our lives people who help us on that journey. And that's crucial. If you and I want to become the people God wants us to be, even when we are old believers in Christ and have known Him forever, we need to grow. We need to keep moving ahead. And that means we need each other. Now, the world comes along and has a very different approach to the idea of human growth and what will make for the best people. So you become the absolute best you can be. It's summed up in a Latin word, term, excuse me, sumum bonum. Now, we're not going into great Latin discussion here. I just want you to know this idea, which translated means the highest or ultimate good, This has been the aim of philosophers and ethicists for centuries. How do people like you and I, how do we live the absolute best life we can be? And because there are so many different people, there have been a whole lot of folks who've given their ideas of what that means. Now, we owe the term to Cicero, an orator in Rome, 
who said we need to be pushing for the ultimate good. And he didn't go very far in discussing it. But along the way, people were glad to come along. Plato, who said the highest good is that which will give most meaning to life. And his answer, how do you achieve that? Through quiet reflection. In other words, Plato said, you need to understand the real things, the spiritual things. And then along comes a guy named Zeno who helped form the Stoic movement. And their basic idea was the way you find the highest good is you live a life that is based on logic, reasoning your way to the good things in life. Don't let yourself be overcome by emotion. And then you have Epicurus, kind of right in the face of Zeno. No, the way to life is pleasure. Now, that by that, he didn't mean go out and carouse and do crazy stuff. He meant the simple life, doing the things that make you happy. That's the highest thing you can do. And then Aristotle comes along, a student of Plato, and he's going to correct his master, but basically, folks, he's as unclear as Plato was about achieving the highest good. And then skip forward for a few centuries, and you have a, a philosopher by the name of Immanuel Kant, and he said, I'll explain what the highest good is. Doing what you ought to do. How's that for vague? He called it the categorical imperative. Everybody, if you do what you ought, it will be the best world. You know the problem with these men and the hundreds and thousands of philosophers and ethicists who come along as they explain what the highest good is? For the most part, they're not taking into consideration that you and I, that the people of this world, are lost. We're lost. And for a lost person to say, I've discovered the best way of life is a little confusing. And when you throw them all together, it's kind of like a picture of a road sign I once came across. And I was assured it is true, a real road sign. And we think the roundabouts that are showing up in Mississippi are confusing. And somebody just tacked a sign on, good luck, do the best you can. But that's the way it is, trying to find meaning in life apart from the God who created us. When the 13th century, a guy shows up on the scene. His name is Thomas Aquinas, or Aquinas if you're Italian. And Aquinas had something very important to say, and you're going to love what he said about the highest good. But I do want to warn you, there's a lot that Aquinas said that you and I wouldn't agree with, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. But this is his definition of what the highest good is. This is what he said we must achieve. In Thomistic thought, the highest good is Usually defined, get ready, the life of the righteous. The highest good is the life that is led in communion with God according to God's way. And at that point, I love Thomas. At that point, it is great, it is wonderful, it is meaningful, it is rich, and should mind. And I do believe that the only way that you and I will ever hope to achieve the highest good in our lives is if we live a life in communion with our God. That's it, folks. That's the only way. We need to learn to walk with our God. We need to hear what he had to say. And the word of God agrees. In Isaiah chapter 26, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 9. Now, I need you to know that the great bulk of the book of Isaiah is all about judgment. And this passage follows some chapters that deal with the judgment. Sometimes Isaiah writes about the judgment upon Judah or Israel. Sometimes he talks about the judgment on the world. But he opens up in Isaiah 26 
with what is called an oracle of salvation. The first six verses are saying we have a strong city. We have a world built by God. And then verses 7 through 9 talk about the heart that gets there. An oracle of salvation says, I believe that God is at work right now to bring about our salvation. God is at work right now to bring about deliverance for his people. Now, I'll also tell you the 26th chapter also takes the form of a dirge because it becomes very clear as you read the whole context that the people of God are hurting and they need to know God's touch. But primarily, what we're looking at today, well, let's just hear what it says. Would you please stand? This is an incredible passage of Scripture. Hear the word of the Lord. The way of the righteous is smooth. O upright one, make the path of the righteous level. Indeed, while following your judgments, the way of your judgments, Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. Your name and remembering you is the desire of our souls. At night, my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. For when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. What's going on here? What is Isaiah saying? Well, in these verses, Isaiah expressed a desire, a desire to follow God. And what he was saying is that following God will bring this incredible walk, this incredible life, touched by God, blessed by God. And this is the one thing I long for, he's saying. Now, I don't believe that this passage of Scripture teaches that if you follow Jesus, everything will be good. Everything will be great. Nothing bad can happen. When you balance the Scripture, we know that the Word of God teaches that even for children of the living God, this Word can be filled with pain and sorrow and hurt. But he is expressing, as someone pointed out, a principle within God's Word. And it's a principle we really need to learn today. There are consequences for the way we live our lives. If we live apart from God, we should not be surprised when the consequences of a life apart from God start showing up. When we decide we're going to follow the Lord, then the blessings of the Lord can come. Consequence. Living for God, Isaiah was saying, is the most important thing to do. He saw the highest good for his life was in the hands of God. In order for you and I to find our highest good, we too must learn what Isaiah learned. Our lives should be led by a desire to follow God. That has got to be at the heart of all that we do, all that we are. But what does that mean? The majority of people in our country right now are still professing faith in Christ. They identify themselves as a Christian. But when I look at our world and I look at the testimonies that are often given and you begin to start digging deeper, what I believe I see is a lot of cultural Christianity. People who know the right words to say, well, let me, let me put it this way. The word of God talks about the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Now, for the most part in the ancient world, there were no philosophical atheists. There were some. But virtually everybody believed in God. But there is a thing called practical atheism. I say I believe in God, but I live like I don't. So there are a lot of people who I will identify themselves as followers of Christ. I am a Christian, but dig. And I don't think everybody who says that knows what it means to follow God. So what does it mean to have a desire to follow God? Well, we're going to build a ladder today. 
Don't worry, it's not going to be a 20-foot ladder. More of a, more of a step ladder. But each of the aspects that I'm going to talk about desiring to follow God, each will build on the one before it. And the one before it, make the, the very first rung makes it possible for me to talk about anything else. And Isaiah knew that the desire to follow God is built on trusting him. The desire to follow God is built on trusting him. For if we don't have faith in the God who has revealed himself to us, if we do not trust him, if we do not yield into his hands our lives, we're stuck. We're on that road sign of life full of confusion. We trust the Lord. And what Isaiah had to say was crucially important. Because Isaiah declared that the upright one, God Almighty, by the way, this is the only place in all of Scripture, this, these two words form together to give a title for God. Now, the idea behind it is found in other phrases. The upright one could be trusted in providing a path through life. Isaiah understood that. Isaiah believed that. And Isaiah said, I'm going to trust you. And he lets us see that along the way. The the very first thing he tells us is that God will provide a path. The way of the righteous. And how does that come through God? An upright one, please make the path smooth. Now, the idea of a path as a way through life is very familiar. If you've ever read the book of Proverbs, Chapters 1 through 9 are formed in the idea of a father giving his son advice. And chapters 1 through 9 of Proverbs are basically saying, this is the path you need to follow in your life. And I'd be willing to bet, even though I am in South Mississippi, and I don't want to use that, overuse that phrase, I'm willing to bet there are people in this building right now Maybe a couple of the first verses you've ever memorized. Declare, trust in the Lord with all your heart. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Don't lean to your own understanding, he says. Put all of your heart and hope in God. You see, in the wisdom literature of Israel, and for Israel, books like Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. These are not, these aren't trying to make you smarter. They're declaring the best way, the wise way to live your life is in the hands of God Almighty. And that's the message. According to Israel's belief, God blesses and guides the righteous by putting them on a straight and direct path. And I'm going to ask you to be sure that you answer honestly. How many of you in this congregation today, and those of you who are watching live or will watch later, how many of you can honestly say, from the moment I became a Christian, I was born again, my life has been one straight line up to glory. I have lived this Christian life perfectly never deviating from the left or the right. Anybody here want to say that? Because we will have prayer for you. The reality is, someone has pointed out, ideally, following the path of God would mean a life that is not dangerous, a road that isn't crooked or hard to travel or filled with rocks and places to stumble. But Gary Smith said the actual path of the righteous often deviates from the ideal because people repeatedly fail to live pure and righteous lives. And because they live among the people in this world who are wicked and oppressive. Isaiah said in the sixth chapter, Woe is me, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a a land of people of unclean lips. That's a human condition, and so 
our our road is never, you know, the shortest distance between two line uh, two points straight line. It's more bumpy, bumpier, and fall, and we fail. But Isaiah still knew and still understood the surest path to God. Why in following God and trusting Him, trusting His judgments. Now that word judgments is one of the words for translated sometimes law. But don't just think about the law of Moses. This means all of God's authoritative decisions that declare what is right or wrong in this world. And even when the judgments of God involve punishment, even when they involve pain and discipline, Isaiah says they're given so that righteousness can be learned. And righteousness can only be found through the God who can level the path. And by the way, the tense of the verb, you will make, indicates confidence. He's saying, I know that you are doing and will do what is necessary for us, your people, in the future. I know that you're going to do it, Lord. Now, that's a lot of trust. In the face of all the pain that can be had, Isaiah says, I know you're going to lead us. And folks, we cannot find God's life's highest good in our own power. We are not going to be able to figure it out. And why? Because we're weak. We fail because we are easily distracted. The world says, hey, look over here. And we say, yeah. And we go. And we fail and we stumble and we fall. We are too ready to march through life listening to what the world is saying. This is what you need. So I'm here today to tell you God is our only hope of finding the highest good because it is wrapped up in who God is. And you and I are not going to do it on our own. But always, the Word of God offers good news. And the good news is we don't have to. Because what you and I cannot do in our own strength, in our own wisdom, in our own abilities, God stands ready to do within us. But to see that, we need to learn to trust the God who is saying, here I am, here's what I've done for you, and here's what I want to do in you. We need to trust Him. And when we do that, and if we do that, understanding I can't do it on my own, I need you, God. As we learn to trust God, we find strength in yielding control and even saying those words. People who like the idea that God will make them have a meaningful life, I just said something tough. Yielding control. Because I believe relinquishing control is one of the hardest things we ever do in this life. When we get to the place where we have to admit, I need to go to the doctor because I'm sick. And I don't want to go, but if I don't, I may die. When we finally come to the place, we have to give up the driving key. When we admit, I can't fix this problem, it's hard, isn't it? When we get to that place where the parent now relies on the child, that's hard. But the truth is, get ready, I don't want to blow your mind too much. The truth is, we have never been as in much control as we think. I can't even control whether or not I finish this sermon today. Now, that's my plan. 
But I don't know what's going to happen in the next few minutes. One of the paradoxes in life, to find real freedom, to find real meaning, we have to submit to a master. And boy, we hate that, don't we? We have to submit our lives. But it's not just to any master to find the highest good, the greatest reason for existence. We must learn what Isaiah learned. We must learn to submit ourselves to the master, our God, the upright one. On June 7, 1891, Charles Spurgeon preached his very last sermon. And the last sermon is always important when it's able to be planned out. Listen to what he said to his people at the London Tabernacle. Every man must serve somebody. Now, ladies, understand, that means every person. Every person must serve somebody. We have no choice as to that fact. Those who have no master are slaves to themselves. Depend on upon it. You will either serve Satan or Christ, either self or the Savior. You will find sin, self, Satan, and the world to be hard masters. But if you wear the uniform of Christ, you will find him so meek and lowly of heart that you will find rest unto your souls. Isaiah said, you can trust God. And trusting God is key to following him. Key to desiring him. Okay, God, I'm willing to put my life into your hands. And folks, when we get to that place, and I'm not just talking about the initial act of salvation by which we declared Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. We confessed our faith in Him. The need to trust God never goes away. So even in our older Christian experience, we must trust God. And as we trust God, as we learn, He's worthy of our trust. He's worthy to be respected and honored. He's worthy, then we take the next step. And folks, please understand, this is a a tool to discuss. These things kind of lead into each other along the way. Our next step, to desire to follow God, is shaped by a hunger to really know Him. To really know Him. Now, I didn't tell you, but I gave you, the congregation, I intentionally gave you the passage in Philippians where the Apostle Paul said, that I may know Him. Have you ever allowed that verse to just kind of freak you out a little bit? I mean, folks, if anybody on earth could say, I know God, shouldn't it be Paul? The apostle to the Gentiles, the man responsible, the Spirit of God used to give us much of our New Testament. If anyone had the right to say, I know God, Paul says, I want to know him at the end of his life. I want to know him. And Isaiah expresses that idea in our text. Isaiah declared his longing for the name of the Lord. Now, beginning in this verse, Isaiah embodies the remnant of the people of God. He's the only one there writing and speaking, but he's speaking as all those who love the Lord. And the phrase that is translated, we have waited for you eagerly, that phrase means to look forward to something. To look forward to something with confidence. Something that is good, something that is beneficial. And whenever you apply that phrase to wait eagerly for, when you say what I'm waiting for is Yahweh, the Lord God, then what it is saying, I'm trusting you, I am eagerly seeking you, to bring into my life salvation, deliverance, hope, and meaning. So their their priority becomes a deep desire. And that word desire 
is used three times in the second part of verse 8 and the first part of verse 9. Three times. You think that might be important? I desire you. And what they desire, we want to see your name glorified. We want to see your reputation go out into this world and be honored and proclaimed and declared. Now, I've told you a lot of times through the years, the word name in the Bible isn't the way we use it. A name is something you call somebody. But within the scripture, it meant more. In the Hebrew mindset, a name indicated who that person is. That's why you gave your name, your children names that you hope would be fulfilling in their lives. Or in the case of Esau, he apparently was a hairy child. Because his parents took one look at him and named him Harry. So whenever you find in the Bible talking about the name of the Lord, it's not just which title you're using or which name. It's saying this is who God is. This is who he is and what he does. So they are praying, God, may your name be glorified. That's what I want, Lord, your name to be glorified. And I want your memory And folks, that is a cultivated memory. It is a memory that looks back over and over again to everything that God has done, everything that he has been. And J.A. Moyer beautifully says, they have cultivated a memory of who God is and what he's done. And the fact that it's constant longing, I want this all the time, indicates there are things that are going wrong in his world. You don't long for something that you completely possess, do you? It says, I'm, I'm hungry for you, God, and the world is in a mess, and my only hope is this God that I hunger in. And it's been pointed out, when he says, I am praying and I'm hungry, he's not saying, God, I want utopia. I want peace. I want Peace and quiet. It's saying, no, I hunger for you. We sang my wife's favorite chorus, Rachel loved as the deer. And the psalmist declares, as the deer pants for the water brooks, that's my thirst for you, God. And that's what Isaiah is expressing. We want to know you, your name. We want to remember your deeds, and we want to declare it to all the world. Well, folks, guess what? We cannot find our way in the journey of faith without the revelation of our God. I don't mean to demean the human race. I'm not trying to put us down. I want us to look at the reality. Contrary, and this is where I disagree with Aquinas. You see, Thomas said that there were things we can learn about God purely from reason. You don't need the Bible. You just look at the facts and you piece it together and you'll come up with God. Now, the Word of God does say that God is revealing himself in nature, but there's something very different between God's revelation of himself and saying, wow, I picked up a leaf with three leaves in it. It must be a trinity. Reason is not enough. And Paul said this to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 2, I'm going to begin in verse 7. I'm going to read through verse 9 because those are the words we most often read. We speak God's wisdom. He's talking about himself and those who plant in water. We speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom of God, which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they have understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, verse 9, pretty much taken out of context most of the time. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the human heart, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Now, the way I normally hear this verse referenced is we could never imagine all that God has in store for us. And while there is truth in that statement, it's not exactly what Paul is saying. 
Because listen to verse 10. For to us, followers of Christ, for to us, God has revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. The the carnal mind, the lost mind, will never be able to understand what God has done. But God has given us His Spirit. And we can begin to know. We can understand what God's doing. Now, yes, He's infinite God. I will never be able to answer every question. But God is giving us what we need to follow Him and to know Him. And so our hearts need to be yielded. To a hunger. A hunger that the name of the Lord is cried out in the way we live our lives. It is declared in the way we respond to other people. That we understand our lives for Christ, either honor Him and lift up our God, or we drag His name through the mud. So we must be open to the truth. How do we know the truth? It's found within His Word. It's found as His Spirit brings it to life within us. How do we know Him? By listening. The Bible is not just a book of facts about God. Those facts are meant to reveal to us God Himself. And this is what's incredibly wonderful and amazing and true and powerful, and we need to hear it. As we learn to remember who God is, we will begin the journey of a greater love. The top desire of your life, the apex of meaning in my life, is to know God. Wanting His name, His reputation to be honored in all that I say and do. But as much as we should desire it, it is still a desire. We are waiting for it in its fulfillment. Yearning for him to reveal to us himself. Again, I defer to Dr. A.W. Towser. Come near to the holy men and women of the past and you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for him. They prayed and wrestled and sought for him day and night, in season and out. And when they found him, the finding was all the sweeter for for their seeking. And Moses, he said, use the fact that he knew God as an argument for knowing God better. Isn't that cool? In Exodus 33, now therefore I pray to you, God, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now the way that I may know you, that I may find grace in your sight. And then in one of the most outlandish statements in all of this scripture, 33:18, I beg you, show me your glory. God's heart was moved by the love and the, the sheer art of this, this prophet had for him. And he said, come on up the mountain and I'll give you a glimpse. So we trust him. We've heard the gospel. We've professed faith in Christ. And along the journey, we find ourselves trusting him, learning to to believe what he says, learning to believe who he is. And when they do that, all of a sudden, we will want to know him better. We will want to know him more. We will hunger for him. And that hunger will lead us to the final step on our ladder today. The desire to follow God is developed by a diligent seeking of the Lord. A diligent seeking for the Lord. And when we look at this prophet, Isaiah indicated that his desire to seek the Lord came from the depths of his being. He had a hunger to find God and know God. And it is a hunger 
that marks who we are. All humans have a hunger. The book of Ecclesiastes puts it this way. God has set in us the, our heart's eternity. And there's a hunger. Most people have no idea what they're hungry for, and when they find out, they don't want it. A hunger. Blaise Pascal, a French philosopher, theologian, mathematician, the, the, the summary of his thought is that there is a God-shaped vacuum in our hearts and nothing will fill that vacuum besides God. That's not exactly what he said, but it's a good summary. Let me share with you. This he tries in vain to fill, this print, empty print within, fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there, the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can only be filled with the infinite, immutable, unchanging object. In other words, the only thing that will quiet the hunger, the desire, is God himself. And the prophet Isaiah said, I have found the Lord. And I know that he will fill the void in my life. But he doesn't say, I found the Lord and my journey is over. I know everything I need to know. I know God as deeply as I can. He says, no, day after day, I will constantly seek him. And he says, I'm going to do it from my soul. I'm going to do it from my spirit, my very heart. Everything in Isaiah is crying out, I am going to keep looking for you, God, seeking after you. So Isaiah understood God was the one who caused him to want to follow. God is the one who caused him to seek. God is the one that put that hunger there. And Isaiah said, I'm never going to be satisfied. I want to keep seeking you. Find God. Well, I need you to understand, seeking God is not an exercise in satisfying our curiosity. Now, a lot of people across the world have, have defined what they think God is and what it might, what it, because many of them, what it might be, who he might be. But when we make God after our own image, it doesn't help. And will not lead us to what we want. But those who have tasted the goodness of God, you've known what it means to say, He is my God. He is my Savior. That hunger burns within us. And we want to know him better. So we start seeking after him. Wanting to know him more and more. Charles Simeon was a a great man of God in days gone by. He devoted the hours from four in the morning till eight in the morning every day till God. John Wesley spent two hours daily in prayer. He too began at four in the morning. Someone who knew him well said he thought prayer to be the more his business than anything else. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, said, if I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory through the day. I have so much busyness, I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. And he had a motto. He that has prayed well has studied well. This desire, this seeking after God. God putting in our hearts his love creates that longing to know him more. And that longing to know him more means I can't just sit by. I'm not going to get to know God the way I want to know Him by coming to church on Sunday mornings. Now, obviously, as a pastor, I'm not telling you to stay home. But it's not enough. I once scared a group of teenage boys. In a Sunday school class, I asked an unthinkable question. What if you only got one meal a week? 
And they looked at me like I said something ugly about their mama. So how's it we think we can get by one encounter with God a week? We need to seek him. We need to have a heart to know him. And the great thing about it, the more we want to know him, the more we seek him, the better and better we come to know him. You see, as we grow in our hunger for God, we begin to find the one who, for whom we have longed. That second ladder, we hunger for him, which means we will seek him. And the more we hunger and the more we seek, the more we begin to understand this God who loves us. This book, Good Morning, Mary Sunshine, Bob Green shared journal entries from the first year of his daughter's life, just everything he noticed. And he wrote once, uh, something new has begun. And he says, I'm having trouble getting used to. He basically said he'd wake up in the morning and look, At the foot of his bed, there was his baby staring at him. And he said, apparently I become one of those objects that fascinates her. And he had confessed, this was weird, this was strange. After months of having to go to her, she's now coming to him just to stare at him. And he said, all I can figure is that she likes the idea of coming in and looking at me. She doesn't expect anything in turn. She just wants to look at Daddy. And after a few minutes, she'd get ready and she'd go back into the living room. Folks, our God is not upset when we stare at him, when we seek him, when we say, you are going to become the most important thing in my life, the important person, and I'm going to seek for you and I'm going to look for you, and I'm not going to be satisfied with occasional glimpses. I want to see you, God. And when that happens, joy starts flooding our hearts. Some of you will remember a very old little chorus. Not a whole lot of words to it, but every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Every day with Jesus, I love him more and more. Jesus saves and keeps me, and he's the one I'm waiting for. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. When we understand our delight in God's presence, our desire to trust him, and our hunger to know him, and our commitment to seek him begins to fill our hearts with joy and meaning and purpose. John Piper told his readers in his book, Hunger for God, if we don't feel strong desires for God, it's not because we've drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because we've nibbled so long at the table of the world. Our soul is stuffed with small things. There is no room for the great. In a blind survey, I once asked a question, are you satisfied with your walk with Jesus? And about 90% of the people taking the survey said yes. And I was horrified. I was shocked. I don't think I can ever say I'm satisfied with my walk. I can say I'm satisfied with Jesus. But if I don't understand I need to grow, then something's wrong. A disciple truly desires to follow the Lord and will trust him. A a disciple who truly desires to follow the Lord will hunger to know him better. And a disciple who truly desires to follow the Lord will diligently seek him throughout life. So does this describe your heart? Is this the longing to follow the Lord, to know him more, to seek his face? Or, to use Kyle Eidelman's words, image, we looked at his book a few uh, years ago. Are we just a fan for Jesus and not really a follower? 
Today, I'm asking you to open your hearts to follow the Lord. Even if you've known him for a long, long time, renew your commitment. Today, ask God, help me to grow in you, Lord. Help me to be the disciple you mean for me to be. Ask him to bring you to a place of intense trust, willing to throw yourself out into the arms of your God, even in the face of a worldly abyss. Ask him to to give you a hunger for him like you haven't had in a long time. Ask him to help you, to cause you to seek him diligently. I came across a poem, The Land of Beginning Again, years ago, decades ago, and it, it spoke to my heart. I only recently found out the story behind it. The Land of Beginning Again was written by a young woman by the name of Louisa Fletcher in the early 20th century, and she lived a tumultuous life at best. Her first husband was a famous poet, Booth Tarkington, and he was a desperate alcoholic, and their marriage ended in divorce after only a few years. She did remarry, and she gave birth to a daughter. But her daughter was diagnosed fairly early as a schizophrenic. And by the age of 16, the light of her world ended her own life. A year later, Louisa wrote this poem. And shortly after that, she too died. It doesn't take any imagination to see the grief in this poem, to hear the pain. I wish there was some wonderful place in the land of beginning again, where all the mistakes and all our heartaches and all our poor selfish grief could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door and never be put on again. I hope and pray that Louisa Fletcher found that place before her death. But many of you, most of you in this room, the land of beginning again is in heaven. It's the moment we give our life to Christ. When we become, as what Paul says, a new creature, the old things have passed away. And you've known that beginning. And you've trusted in Christ. But there's more to it even than that. Because along the journey, when we lose sight of God, when we lose our direction, when we lose our path, God keeps calling us. God keeps reaching out to us. Start over. Come back home. Let me fill your life and heart. So I'm asking you today, as you bow your heads and you close your eyes and we think about the idea of a desire to follow God, I'm asking you to go to God right now and ask him, Lord God Almighty, make me into a disciple that desires you above all else.